welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We're in Isaiah 49 this morning, just by way of kind of reintroducing how we've managed to get to Isaiah 49. Um, The book of Isaiah is divided into two major portions. Uh, chapters 1 to 39, and then chapters 40 through 66. And uh, I've, I've talked about the sub-sort of units within, those bo- within the books, but important to understand that between chapter 39 and chapter 40 is a chronological gap of probably somewhere between 150 and 200 years. So um, the, the very different historical contexts and quite different messages Um, we've been in the second portion of the book for a few weeks now, and perhaps you may remember Isaiah 40 commences the second portion with an announcement of hope, a promise that deliverance is going to come to a people that have been in exile for nearly seven decades. Israel have all but capitulated before their Babylonian oppressors. Many have chosen to assimilate and effectively have become Babylonians. Those who haven't have become incredibly cynical and unbelieving. They are constantly asking, or perhaps more accurately, actually accusing and charging God with either neglect or or impotence. You either don't care, or if you do, you haven't got enough power to do anything about the fact that you care. And Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 27 kind of sums up the questions or the accusations that they were making. It says, O Jacob, O Israel, how can you say that the Lord doesn't see your troubles and isn't being fair? That's basically what they were saying. God doesn't see us, and if he does, he doesn't care. Now, as a result of that, God enters into a series of forensic trials with these people. He calls them to court. And in chapters 41 through 47, there are a number of these trials, and I've listed them there if you're interested. 41 verses 1 to 7, 41, 21 to 29, Chapters 42, 43, 44, and 45, these are all trial scenes where God is calling them to a courtroom situation and is responding to their doubts, their questions, and their accusations. They were saying, you have neglected us. He shows them that the Babylonian captivity that they've now been in for nearly seven decades is not the result of divine neglect, but rather a case of divine discipline and judgment. He then starts speaking to them through through this portion about an instrument that he's raising up to deliver them from Babylon. The news that they're about to be delivered from Babylon is striking news. They've been there for seven decades. There's nothing on the horizon that would indicate they're about ready to be let home. But he tells them that he's raising up a person. And so in these chapters, we have what we call the Cyrus Oracles. At that time, the emperor, Empire of Medio Persia was on the rise, and it was led by a man called Cyrus. And God informs these captive people that this man and that empire would destroy Babylon and release God's people. So in Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 8, God reveals Cyrus as God's servant and chosen instrument in his purposes. If Isaiah of Babylon is the author of the book, this is a remarkable prophecy. Isaiah calls Cyrus by name, probably something like 200 years before he even arrives on the scene. 
So he talks about the instrument he's raising up to destroy Babylon, and then Isaiah 47, he declares Babylon's doom. And through these forensic trials, God is trying to lead these people to the conclusion that Yahweh is the king of history and not the Babylonian idols. At the end of these trials, and by this stage we come to chapter 48, Israel is completely unmoved, totally unresponsive, and as hard-hearted as any of their ancestors had been. So Isaiah 43, verse 22 to 24 says, You didn't pay a bit of attention to me, Jacob. You so quickly tired of me, Israel. You wouldn't even bring sheep for offerings and worship. You couldn't be bothered with sacrifice. It wasn't that I asked that much from you. I didn't expect expensive presents, but you didn't even do the minimum. So stingy with me, so close-fisted, yet you haven't been stingy with your sins. You've been plenty generous with them, and I'm fed up. Here's God incredibly disappointed at their response to his announcement that he's on the move. So Isaiah 48, which is kind of the end of this portion, is filled with ambiguity. The ebb and flow skillfully reflects the human response to the divine initiative. These people are running hot and cold. So verse 1 says, Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth and righteousness. And verse 4, I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron, your forehead was bronze. Verse 8, you have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ears have not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. Here's God reaching out to this people, and they are absolutely unresponsive. So the final verses of this portion in Isaiah 48 tell these people what might have been had they responded to God. And it says, if only you'd paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river. Your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand. Your children like its numberless grains. Their name would have never been blotted out nor destroyed from before me. They could have had prosperity like a river, but now they will not. They could have had well-being like the waves of the sea, but now they will not. They could have had descendants like the sand on the seashore, but now they will not. They could have had an enduring name, but now they will not. They refused to respond. In the face of Israel's despondency and resistance, however, God is still committed to his mission to bless the nations. Israel had always been raised up to be an instrument of blessing to the nations. They refuse. God says, all right, I'll set you aside. However, I am still on a quest to bless the nations. So God then declares that he'll do a new thing. And as you're reading this portion of Isaiah, you'll see that crop up. Forget the former things. I'm going to do something new. And the new thing really revolves around a servant that he is going to raise up. He will raise up a servant. The corporate servant Israel had failed miserably. Now God turns to an individual who he says will do what I want done. So we looked last time at Isaiah 42, which is the first of a series of what people call servant songs. So Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9 is the first. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13 is the second servant song. The third is found in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. And the fourth and final servant song is Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. 
So we've come to Isaiah 49 this morning, and it turns a corner. Uh, no longer does God talk about Cyrus. He stops talking about Babylon. The focus now is solely on this mysterious servant, the one who will be God's ideal Israelite, the one who will do his will, do his work, and represent God's interests. He will do and be what corporate Israel, that servant, could not do and would not be. So let's read then from the second servant song. I'm reading from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13. It goes like this. I'm just reading the first seven verses. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He had spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now through this series I've mentioned that Isianic scholars endlessly debate who this mysterious servant might be. Through our studies, I've basically cut to the quick and suggested that the New Testament writers saw Jesus in these songs and that we should too. That we should read the Old Testament with what I call Christological spectacles and that the primary focus of the songs is on God's servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So these songs constitute a prophetic biographical description of his person and his ministry. In verse 1, you, you have a focus on the calling of the servant. And that calling has to do with the eternal purposes and counsels of God in choosing the eternal son to come in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to suffer and to bring release to God's people. In verse 2, we have the preparation of that servant in his hiddenness. And those verses give us a real insight into what God was doing in the life of the servant during the silent years, the years that we never hear about in, in Nazareth, in, in the carpenter's shop. Verse 3 focuses on the concerns or the purpose of this servant. He will glorify God, restore Israel, be a light to the Gentiles, a covenant to the people, and he will restore the earth. And then in verse 7, it indicates that all of this will involve a pathway, not of military force and conquest as they might have expected, but surprisingly one of rejection and humiliation. Now, Jesus is, as you've often heard, the pattern son and the pattern servant. He's the prototype, as it were, from which all other servants are to take their cues and are to reflect. And while I do want to say to you that the primary thrust of this passage is the servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, it also secondarily 
is about those who would follow in his footsteps and also be God's servant. And I'm not doing damage to the text in looking at it that way. That's exactly what Paul did. Um, I acknowledge that it's the secondary meaning of the text, but it is nonetheless a meaning in it. And it's that meaning that I want to explore with you very briefly this morning. In Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul was describing his present ministry. And in describing that present ministry, he taps into the servant song of Isaiah 42 and says, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the reality is that you and I, in the footsteps of Paul, are now God's servants. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, As he is, so are we also in this world. We are called now to be his servants. Corporate Israel failed. The individual servants succeeded. The baton has now been passed. And you and I are his servants. And what I want to do this morning, very briefly, is look, look at Isaiah 49 in the light of our calling to be his servants and to follow in the footsteps of the pattern service. Servant, rather. Now, I, expect, I, I, I suspect that what I'm about to do would make some Isianic scholars shudder, but hey, they aren't here, okay? So we can maybe forget them. So let's go back. Verse 1 has to do with the election or the calling of the servant. And as that servant was called from the womb, the Bible speaks very clearly about you and I being called in the eternal purposes of God. Jeremiah said, it was said of Jeremiah rather in chapter 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Exactly the same thing is said of Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, and you say, well, that's Jeremiah, that's, that's Paul, that's not me. Well, Isaiah speaks, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 speaks of you, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. You're chosen. God had his eye on you and his eternal purposes. He put his finger on you. Now, I know that the idea of election raises huge theological questions and caused incredible debate and not a little controversy over the years. I don't plan to explore it in this message, much to your relief, I'm sure. I'll save those arguments for another day and another message. Let me simply say this. I believe the Bible teaches destiny without forcing us to go to determination. Destiny without having to go to, well, I'm a puppet in God's purposes. If he's called me, then what do you do? God does have high destiny and eternal purpose in mind, but I'd like to suggest to you that will never be realized without your participation. We've just been through a whole section of Isaiah where God explains the purpose and destiny that he has for these people, and these people say, no, thank you. And so God moves. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 speaks about God having good purpose for you, and you've, you know the scripture, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We've all heard those scriptures, but I tell you, those plans have to be chosen by us. They are not something that will just happen on the, you know, the hard rails of determination. God takes into account our response to his eternal purposes. So there is the calling of the servants, servant. Verse 2 has the preparation of the servant. 
And it says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. God uses two metaphors through Isaiah here to describe the servant's life and ministry. The first is a sword. And that relates primarily to words. We know about the sharp words that that Hebrews speaks about, uh, you know, that cut through deep into our lives. It talks about Jesus having a sword coming out of his mouth, the words of his mouth. So the sword speaks of the words. If you like, it speaks about the ministry of our lives. The arrow, the straight shaft of the arrow relates to life and character. That verse is about the preparation of both life and ministry in the experience of a servant. And I want to just say to you this morning, the sharpened sword and the polished arrow don't happen by accident. They don't happen by osmosis. They don't happen automatically in a moment. They are the result of prolonged attention. It's a fascinating study to look into how both swords and arrows were produced in the ancient world. Swords were made by skillful smiths. They would take the metal and make it malleable by subjecting it to incredibly hot temperatures. I'm sure you've all seen pictures of a smithy working with a, in a forge, hammering an almost white-hot metal into a required shape on an anvil. This is what we are talking about. The smith would repeatedly take the piece of metal and heat it and cool it in a process that they called normalizing. The process was to remove the stresses that were built up in the body of the blade while it was being forged. And the smith would put the blade through what he called quenching and tempering. Quenching was the process of heating the blade up to super hot temperatures and then plunging it into an ice cold bath. Tempering was effectively doing exactly the same thing, only allowing the cooling process to take a longer period. So hot and then cold, either immediate cold or the cooling of room temperature. And the combined shock of the quenching and the tempering altered the interior molecular structure of the metal, conferring on it durability and hardness. Once that was At its required point, the blade would be then ground and polished to get a sharp cutting edge. All that to say, a sharpened sword did not happen by accident. And that God uses both highs and lows, the heat and the cold of our circumstances in the the preparation of, of his servant. And it was exactly the same for a polished arrow. You know, when when we were kids making arrows for the bows that we'd created, we used to just go and get a piece of bamboo. It was relatively straight. We'd stick a sharpened nail in the end of it, and and that was it. And and all, all up, it probably took us about 15 minutes. And to be truthful, the end result probably reflected the amount of time that we took to prepare the arrow. But a fine arrow was a prolonged process. In Bible times, they used for the shaft, acacia wood. Acacia wood didn't grow straight like bamboo. It had to be straightened. Obviously, a warped or twisted arrow could never hit the mark, and the sharpened arrowhead, no matter how sharp and well-formed it was, would be rendered useless without a straight shaft. I'd like just to suggest to you that the arrowhead is like the gift on your life. Without character, without the straight shaft, that gift will never reach its potential. It'll always miss the mark. The reality is you and I are like acacia wood. We are crooked timber. 
It requires the grace of God to produce something straight out of such timber. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, once said, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. I would want to add, except by God's grace. In ancient times, the timber was chosen and cut and then placed in a frame using tightly placed pegs that would gradually force the crooked timber straight. In the middle of those, there's supposed to be an arrow, okay? The crosses represent the pegs. In the middle is the arrow, and the pegs were placed like that, and it forced the crooked timber of the acacia wood straight, and it was held there until it came naturally straight. That process, by the way, might give you some insight into why you, as God's servant, find yourself occasionally or perhaps prolonged in a situation where you are restricted and pinned in a setting that you cannot easily extract yourself from. Now, I know in those situations the temptation is to blame someone else or something else for the restriction that you are experiencing. You blame your boss. You may blame your spouse. You may blame the leader of your team or your financial circumstances. I can't get out of this particular situation. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning, and you can do what you like with this, but that sometimes it's God that actually pins us in those situations. Because the truth is, God develops godly character in us through our committed relationships. Our committed relationships are the ones that we cannot escape from easily. And we find ourselves pinned in them. And it's in those seasons of feeling very pinned and very restricted that God sometimes works very deeply in us, straightening out the tradition of our crooked timber. You know, the problem with us postmoderns, however, is that there is virtually no relationship that we cannot and will not escape from. We simply change our jobs regularly. We change our churches regularly. We change our spouses, unfortunately, reasonably regularly. We can even divorce our parents now, apparently. There isn't any relationship that we can't extract ourselves from if we want to. We are essentially committed to no one beyond ourselves. And that may explain why increasing numbers of people in our culture are caught in a web of immaturity and narcissism. We simply never get straightened out. Did your parents ever say that to you? You need to be straightened out, son. Well, now we know how God does it. He puts us in committed relationship and says, stay there. I'm straightening you out. And I want to tell you, there's no way to escape God. He's relentless. You may escape your spouse. You may escape your, uh, your job. But God will, he will be relentless. He will go after you. He fixes a fix to fix you. And if you unfix the fix that he's fixed you with, then he will fix another fix to fix you with. <laughs> and if you didn't get that, go back to the podcast, okay? Once the shaft was straight and would stay straight, then it would be sanded, more abrasive people and circumstances, polished and oiled. You know, even when we are relatively straight, speaking relatively, he, he doesn't immediately then thrust us into service. I want you to note that this sharpened uh, sword and this polished arrow are concealed. The sword is in the shadow of his hand. The polished shaft is in his quiver. He does not immediately throw them into action. You know, after a long period of preparation, some of us think, you know, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. Just, just I'm ready to go. 
And then instead of letting us loose, he actually holds us back. And God's servants will more often than not have seasons of hiddenness, during which we experience at least two of God's most effective tools for shaping and sharpening us. And the first is obscurity. Who wants obscurity? You know, we're all told from this high, knee high to a grasshopper that we're made for special things. And, and it's not that I don't believe that, but, but the reality is essentially God will use obscurity to allow that to actually be a reality. There are times when we are relatively unknown, unappreciated, and unapplauded. Joseph had his season in jail. Moses spent 40 years in the backside of a desert. David learned to worship and trust God in the back paddocks of Bethlehem. John the Baptist spent years in the desert. Jesus spent three decades in a carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Paul was in Arabia for 14 years. God uses obscurity. And when you're in that place, you're tempted to think, as Israel did, God has forgotten me, and if he hasn't forgotten me, then he hasn't enough ability to get me out of this situation. And the reality is he's hiding you. In the relentless mundaneness of those seasons of obscurity, our character is further built and shaped. And as strange as it may seem, it's those who accept and even come to the place where they enjoy the restrictions of obscurity that are ultimately best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. To take a person and put them in a place where they are immediately exalted is to endanger them, quite frankly. The second instrument that God uses in these seasons when we are hidden, obscurity, it's related to that, and it's the tool of solitude, of learning to be alone with who you are. Solitude has nurturing qualities all of its own, and it's been, and it's been said that if you have to have superficial sounds to survive, then, then you lack depth. That's probably a searing comment, but Chuck Swindoll says, if you can't stand to be alone with yourself, then you have deep, unresolved inner conflicts in your life. I'm glad Chuck said it and that I didn't have to. If you're not happy with that, you can blame him. Seasons of solitude highlight these inner issues and allow them, uh, 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 they, they bring these deep wounds to the surface, and ha we have the opportunity for healing. So the calling of the servant, verse 2, the preparation of the servant, verse 3, the purpose of the servant. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The message translation says, Israel through whom I will shine. He purposes that his life will be revealed in and through us, that there's something of his life that will shine through us as a result of that calling and that preparation. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus, the servant, at prayer. And in verse 1, he says, Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He is very aware of his purpose. He knows the election and the calling. He's been through the preparation. And, and we see Jesus about the Father's business, seeking to allow the glory of God to flow through him. The message, by the way, has, Father, it's time to display the bright splendor of your Son so that the Son, in turn, may show your bright splendor. God works in us so ultimately he can work through us. It's not that we are simply a means to his end. 
I don't mean to suggest that. We are, in effect, the end that God is seeking. He wants you. But then he wants to partner with you to be a blessing to other people, to shine through other people. I'm fascinated, and I'm drawing to a close here, but I, I just want, there's a passage in Isaiah 44, if you just listen to it, it says this, but now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. So there you've got this same kind of calling election language. This is what the Lord said. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and also will help you. If you'd notice here, we're first of all talking about Jacob and Israel. Jacob, my servant, Israel that I've chosen. Jacob and Israel are the same person. Just their names were changed, or his name was changed at a different stage of his relationship with God. First of all, we have Jacob, the, the trickster, the, the crooked timber, the one who is gifted but unshaped. So God puts Jacob through this prolonged period where he, remember, he serves Laban for a wife, gets the wrong wife, finally gets the second one, but spends 20 years nailed to the ground, as it were. And through that nailing, Jacob is ultimately straightened out on the way home after that season of being um, pinned, he, he meets God at the brook Jabok and they wrestle together. He's touched by God and his name has changed. He's called then a prince with God. So we've got Jacob, the trickster, the crooked timber. We've got Israel, the result of a long process of formation, a formation that was painful and, and prolonged. And the, the language uses, I made you, I formed you. The idea is, yes, I created you, but I want to do more than that. I need to do more than that. I am your creator, but I'm your redeemer, the one who shapes and, and makes you. And in Isaiah 44, verse 23, it says, The Lord has redeemed Jacob, displays his glory in Israel. He redeems the crooked timber, but once he's got the crooked timber redeemed, he works with it so that ultimately he can be glorified through that servant. Friends, you and I are his servants. I know that these passages in Isaiah speak primarily about the servant, but you and I are called to be a servant in the pattern, after the pattern and the prototype that Jesus was. He was called, you are called. He was prepared, you are being prepared. And through him, God was glorified. That's the ultimate purpose that God has for you and I as the people of God. He wants people to see the light of God's splendor, and the possibilities of divine purpose happening in them as it's happened in you. He has created you and he's redeemed you, but he's formed you and he wants to glorify himself in you and through you. Like Israel of old, we have a choice. High destiny, but not determination. God came in Isaiah 40 and said, good news, I've forgiven you and I'm about to release you. And the people go, yeah, right, whatever. And by Isaiah 48, they have hardened their heart and they're resisting that calling and they're resisting that hope and they are still mired in their cynicism and their sin. So God effectively turns from them and he says, okay, I'll do it through someone else. And the choice is always there for you and me. High destiny, but not determination. We have to learn how to respond and say, yes, Lord, whatever, whatever you want. And I might be 
nailed into a situation that I can't get out of. Rather than simply seeing that as a situation that I have to extract myself from, you might well be uh, better off asking the Lord, Lord, is this something with regard to your purposes? What do I learn here? What can I be in this fix? Because if I unfix the fix before you fix me, I know what's going to happen. You're going to fix me again. And some people just go from fix to fix to fix, and they never learn to allow God to straighten them out. So with love, hear the Father say, I'm straightening you out, son. I'm straightening you out, my daughter. You know, I, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't turned from you. I'm involved in these circumstances, and if you can lift up your eyes and see... Something of the warped, crooked timber of your life is being straightened as and when and if you'll respond to me. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.